We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by historian Rutger Bregman, who spoke to journalist and broadcaster Helen Lewis about his new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. And together, they answer the age-old question of whether humans are governed by self-interest or whether deep down we're actually pretty decent and kind. It's a fascinating conversation, and the event was part of our new subscription service, Intelligence Squared Plus. So you'll hear a lot of questions towards the end from our live audience. And if you enjoy it and you want to take part in some of our future events and ask your questions to the speakers, including our cancel culture debate coming up on the 22nd of September, you can go to intelligencesquared.com slash plus and subscribe today with a special podcast discount code. Use the code podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at the checkout and join today today to support Intelligence Squared and learn from some of the most brilliant minds. Now, let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with Rutger Bregman, the Dutch historian and writer at The Correspondent. His 2019 book, Utopia for Realists, was a Sunday Times and New York Times bestseller and has been translated into 32 languages. His latest book, Humankind, A Hopeful History, my copy is a very patriotic Dutch <laughs> orange, uh, is also a bestseller and is a Guardian Times and Financial Times summer read. Okay, Rutger, easy one first. <laughs> What made you want to write the book? So I think two things. The first thing was that while I was on a book tour with my previous book, Utopia for Realists, I started to get into the same situation time and time again. So the previous book was, one of the ideas in there was the notion of a universal basic income. You know, we talked about that. Uh, the, the notion of just giving everyone free money, a monthly grant that's enough to pay for your basic needs to afford food, shelter, clothing, that kind of thing. Six years ago, it was a quite obscure idea. Now it's really moved into the mainstream. 
So in that book, I try to show that there's actually a lot of convincing scientific evidence that this could actually work and people don't waste it on drugs or alcohol or they'll watch Netflix all day, but they actually, you know, find a new job, start a new company. It, there's, there's good evidence that it might work on a, on a bigger scale. But then again and again, after 20 or 30 minutes of, of discussing this evidence with readers, I find myself in a very different debate, which was about human nature. Because that's always where it, ended up, where it ended up, that people would say, yeah, but what about human nature? Aren't people, in the end, just selfish? Maybe not like in a weird Nordic country, maybe not in Canada in the 1970s, but on average, most people, if you scale these things up, will turn out to be selfish. That's just how it, how it works. That, that was sort of, it made me think that I had to go a little bit deeper. Then the, the second thing that made me want to write this book is that I started to notice that in so many different scientific disciplines, a new view of human nature seemed to be emerging, that so many specialists from different, different disciplines now have a bit more hopeful view of who we are as a species, but they often don't notice what's going on in the field next to theirs. Because academia, as you know, it's so specialized these days, is that a psychologist doesn't often doesn't really know what's happening in evolutionary anthropology or in sociology or something like that. So in this book, I just wanted to connect the dots and to show that something bigger is going on. I'm interested in your backstory. So I think, as you say, one of the really interesting things that links both that book and this book is this idea of realism or guess pragmatism, right? The idea that these aren't kind of crazy left wing, like would be lovely if we could in a perfect world kind of ideas. These are practical things that we can do. So the book to me seems like it's a reaction against the economic model that's dominated the West since, well, throughout the 20th century, certainly since the 1970s, whether you want to call it neoliberalism or whether or not you think that's a, an overused word. I think it's probably both. And then, as you say, the psychological underpinnings of that saying, well, this is how people act rationally. But it also seems to be an argument to me about whether or not political change is itself possible, right? The idea that lots of people feel very apathetic. They feel caught in the grip of these big forces and powerless to make change. So where does that come from in your background to want to fight against all of that? Like in my personal background, that's a great question. So many journalists are often quick to point out that my father is a Protestant minister, right? So I have a religious background in that way. I'm not religious myself anymore. Um... But, you know, when I was 18 or 19 years old, I, uh, as, as many people at that age, I was obsessed with the question, does God exist? Did Jesus die for my sins? I wanted to know the answers. And especially, I, I think I sort of wanted to become a Christian. I just needed to find the right evidence first, the right argument, so that I could sort of convince everyone in, in my context who was not had the same beliefs. But then I, you know, went down that road and became an atheist. In that period of my life, I was very obsessed with the question, what is true, right? If, what about this dogma? What about that dogma? Does God exist? What does that mean? Uh, like, did he create the world 6,000 years ago? Or is, is he like sort of an omnipresent being? Blah, 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 all those kind of questions. As I became older, however, I, I guess I became less interested in sort of those boring questions like, is this or that true? And I became more interested in the questions, what would happen if we believe this? What would happen if we believe that? Because I also started to realize that actually the conversation I'd been having with my father over all those years, it didn't really make sense because he was looking at me and, and I guess he was thinking all that time that, that I didn't really understand religion because for him, religion was never really about that, about, you know, <laughs> what is truth? It was about something else. Yeah. Um, so that doesn't mean that I've suddenly turned into a Christian, but 
I think people are right when they point out that in many ways, this is a quite Christian book or a religious book that I'm interested in. Yeah, typically religious questions. That's so interesting to me because my father is a Catholic minister. Mm -hmm. And I think when you grow up in that a kind of household, my mum was a religious education teacher, a household where people are interested in the, you know, in the idea of service to other people, right? And that to me is the good side of religion, the idea that there's, you know, that there's more, I guess you say there's more on, on, on to life than getting the most stuff that you can, than achieving the most stuff that you can, than getting as much wealth yeah. as you can. But the good, the good life is about being part of a society and giving back to other people. And do you feel a bit, because I sometimes feel a bit guilty about my younger atheism when I was very zealous about being <laughs> an atheist, about, you know, going very hard on religion as the opium of the yeah, masses yeah. and not recognizing perhaps some of the community stuff, yeah. which I think I feel very much in this book about that religion did give people and perhaps the absence of religion, there hasn't been something equivalent, a secular version of that yeah. to replace it. I sometimes think that the great tragedy of religion is that the most wonderful generation of believers is also the last generation because sort of they're not they're not that dogmatic anymore they sort of keep the good things and they've you know they've they've lost the the, the very nasty things but then they're not evangelical anymore they don't have sort of the the power or the will to really share their their truth because they're not that all that sure about it anymore so that i think that's one of the great tragedies of of religion and uh, I, I've always been interested in sort of the question, how can we take the good things of religion and of churches? Because I've seen in my life just what, how extraordinarily wonderful and, and important they can be in people's lives. And I've really felt the gap in my own life, you know, by from becoming an atheist. So I've always been interested in that. And I, I think people can see that when they when they read this book. Can we um, go through a couple of the important concepts that you talk about in this? First, the so-called the nocebo effect, right? The kind of evil twin of the placebo what what is that okay so i think that everyone knows what a placebo is right you think that something is going to help you or cure you and it and it actually can you can really see this in uh, research into antidepressants for example which are i mean there's quite some evidence that they have some like how do you say that real medical effect here the question is obviously what is real but a big part of the effect is a placebo now that doesn't mean that antidepressants are you know not valuable they're actually really valuable but they because they really help people but it also means that placebos are very powerful and the interesting thing is that the more spectacular a placebo is the more effective it is so if i give you a pill and say this is going to help you that may be effective but if, if i give you an injection you know, that's probably going to more, be more effective because it's easier to believe that an injection is, I mean, that's really something that's happening. Now, one of the most powerful things you can do is, is to do surgery or fake surgery. Sham surgery is the, is the term. And this is really, there's been really been research into this where they, yeah, they do procedures on people for like really nasty conditions like chronic back pain, for example. And they uh, just pretend to do surgery on someone and then they don't do anything at all while people are in, uh, you know, asleep. And they wake up and they say, well, it was a resounding success and people feel much better. Now, that doesn't mean that it's fake or anything. It just means that the human brain is way more interesting than we often think and that the whole medical process is way more interesting than we often think it is. Now, the opposite, opposite thing of a placebo is the nocebo where a doctor says to you, well, you might experience side effects, and there you go. You, you already start feeling it, right? You might feel a little bit itchy here and there, you already, right? So that can be a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. So in the book, I use this metaphor of a placebo and a nocebo, where 
what we believe comes to pass as a as a way to look at human nature as well because i think that our theories of human nature are often like that that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them if you assume that most people are selfish and nasty and that our civilization is only a thin veneer then you'll create a society where you'll have institutions that just will bring out the worst in each and every one of us and i think we can turn it around and have a society that doesn't work with a nocebo but with a placebo view of human nature and tries to bring out the best in each and every one of us yeah it seems to me that racism often functions in that way where you can to try and explain that difference where people who have very strong beliefs about other ethnic groups nonetheless can end up having you know they they exempt a particular you know, people that they know yeah, from that yeah. right and and therefore the, the those generalizations can coexist with the idea that actually on an individual level you know they they don't they don't have those beliefs in their everyday life right and they get together with people from different ethnicities and i suppose that's part of that what you're talking about about the way that we tend to assume other people have you know we we feel that things are true that aren't because we feel that everyone else must think that or you know we we have beliefs that we don't really carry out yeah, in practice yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah tell me about uh, i love this phrase homo puffy <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a controversial phrase in my book. Some people are like, "Are you serious about that?" But no, it's it's the it's the concept that I hope will it make you like famous. It sounds like a very kind of banging <laughs> banging club yeah. night. I hope it goes into the annals of science. Now, there's one of the most fascinating new theories from biology and evolutionary anthropology is the idea that human beings have evolved to be friendly. So the scientific term for this is self domestication. I think we all know what domestication is, right? We've got cows and we've got goats and sheep and these are animals that have been selected for tameness over the centuries and maybe even millennia by farmers and people who have animals um and the interesting thing is that domestication does very specific t things to an animal so there's a list of traits that you get with this so-called domestication syndrome and biologists have known about this for a very long time i mean darwin already observed this in the 19th century. So what do you get? Well, you get animals with, uh, with thinner bones, smaller brains, and most importantly, they just look a little bit more childish or puppyish, if you like will. Lovely floppy ears, yeah, right? Yeah, like floppy really ears, very important. So that's domestication syndrome. And now the, the really fascinating thing is that if you look at humans, if you look at us, we seem to be domesticated. But who did it? Right? Who domesticated us? And the answer is we self-domesticated. So there's, I think, accumulating evidence that over the millennia, there was this process of survival of the friendliest. Where actually the friendliest among us, the tamest among us, had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. And this had a huge impact on our bodies. So if you compare... Uh, homo sapiens skeletons from 50,000 years ago to skeletons from 30 or 20 or 10,000 years ago or to the way we look now you see this puppification of humanity right you see that we've been domesticated you see that we just look a little bit nicer in general it's it's also feminization is a very important part of self domestication is where you just the men start looking more like the women uh, I, I don't think anyone should tell this to Jordan Peterson, because <laughs> he'll be quite shocked. But <laughs> that is, I'm afraid, the direction in which the, the science points right now. So I've come up with a term for this, and this is homo puppy. Um, yeah, you can be the judge uh, if that's a good term. <laughs> 
Do you know what will make you happy is that I went to a Jordan Peterson lecture before I uh, interviewed mm -hmm. him and he did talk about and something you talk about in your book, actually, which is that the whites of the eyes mm. in humans, we don't have dog's eyes, mm. animal's eyes. You know, you can tell where we're looking. He introduced, I was sort of slightly nodding off a bit by that point, And he went, now I'm going to talk about the gaze. And I went, uh, what? Are you sorry? And luckily it turned out he was, in fact, talking about where humans mm. look rather than homosexuality, which might have been a, a more controversial route to go down. I just want to talk to you about that middle section of the book, which is concerned with debunking quite a lot of social psychology experiments. And, you know, there does seem to me to be a big crisis in social psychology where a discipline that is, you know, supposed to explain human nature has kind of succumbed to a, you know, this is what we think human nature is, and then let's work backwards and try and justify it. So which are the, which are the experiments that you think no longer stand up? Well, after the Second World War, there was this new generation of young scientists, social psychologists, who were obviously thinking, how can we explain the Holocaust? How can we explain World War II? How can people behave in such horrible, monstrous ways? And what was very interesting about this moment is that there was this opportunity for very young researchers, like Stanley Milgram, for example, who was, I think, 28 years old at the time, or 29, very young, and they did these fascinating experiments that, you know, really have high viral potential. You see a video of it and you're like, holy shit, do people really behave like that? And it, yeah, it went really completely viral in a 60s style. Um, the other one was um, the Stanford Prison Experiment. It was a couple of years later, at the beginning of the 70s, done by Philip Zimbardo. Really interesting is that Stanley Milgram, who, by the way, did the shock machine experiments. I think that almost everyone will have heard about this, if not... Google shock machine Milgram and find the horrifying video on YouTube. And Milgram and, and Zimbardo were actually part of, uh, in the same class in high school. Uh, very interesting. Now, these uh, experiments, I think sort of the point or the message of these experiments were if you take perfectly normal, healthy, average human beings and you put them in an evil situation, then they very, very quickly turn into savages or monsters. So... Again, civilization is only a thin veneer and deep down, or maybe not even that deep down, we're all monsters or Nazis. These experiences became incredibly famous, ended up in all the textbooks of psychology students, you know, dozens of documentaries were made about them and, and Milgram and Zimbardo were, were, were super famous. I mean, Zimbardo is the most famous living psychologist today, draws huge crowds. Um, but yeah, then the problem is that especially in the case, by the way, of the Stanford Prison Experiment. It's like, what do you call it? Fake science? I mean, it's like the, uh, we now know that, uh, yeah, actually things happen in a very different way because only now, 50 years later, the archives have opened up and researchers have gone in there and discovered the real story, which was often pretty much the opposite of what we've always been told. Right. And people were just basically felt they were kind of coerced into being, you know, they, they, they were very reluctant, the, the guards, to, to act kind of cruelly. Right. And there was a whole load of stuff specifically set up by the researchers in order to dehumanize the prisoners. And and so people went along with what they thought they wanted the experiment to be. Right. It wasn't this great wellspring of cruelty that kind of gushed out of them. It actually revealed more about our desire for conformity and to sort of please people, I suppose, if if you're going to talk about that. I want to bring you to what I think has been the most consistent criticism of the book, looking at the reaction to it. So you, you talk about these post-Second World War 
you know, experiments that try to explain the Holocaust, right? The idea of after Auschwitz, everything is different. And whilst I agree with you that those experiments really took that conclusion and worked backwards, nonetheless, that is a, you know, the fact is that humans are capable of great evil. What is your best guess as to why that is? If it isn't this veneer theory that we're all, you know, just two millimetres away from becoming savage and, and horrible to each other. You know, one of the interesting things is that if you want to explain human niceness or friendliness, no one expects some kind of big theory, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, it sort of makes sense. How did we ever conquer the globe if if we are not good at cooperating? Then it do- Like, if we were really like the kids in Lord of the Flies, then why are we still here, right? But then you sometimes are in these interviews, especially for radio or television, and then after three minutes, like, the question is, yeah, but what about the Holocaust? How do you explain that? <laughs> yeah, what about, what about that? Now, obviously, sort of, that is an, a huge question, and libraries full of books have been written about it. One of, this is one of my main criticisms of these social psychology experiments, is that they sort of trivialize this horrible, cruel behavior. It's sort of like, oh, there's a relatively simple explanation, and that's why people behave in that way. While, I guess, for me as a historian, it's so important to point out that this was the, the result at the end of an incredibly complicated historical process in which evil was normalized and in which people started to believe that this savage behavior was somehow necessary or could be morally justified, right? But there are so many different parts of the, of, um, of the explanation that you need. So yes, in the book, I have one chapter about why the Wehrmacht soldiers kept on fighting in 1944 and 1945 when it was clear that they were going to lose the war. You would assume, and this is what allied psychologists assumed at the time, that they were brainwashed, right? That they were these fanatics who, yeah, were just um, uh, fighting till the very end because they, I don't know, uh, believed in the cause. Actually, what they later discovered, especially after interviewing lots of prisoners of war, is that many of these soldiers were fighting for their friends and for their uh, comrades. That Kameradschaft was the really most important ingredient to let these uh, soldiers keep on fighting. Now, obviously, that explanation doesn't work for the fanatical GAM guards or the SS, high-ranking SS officers, etc. There you need a very different explanation. But what I do try to point out in the book is that very often we do the most horrible things not in the name of sadism or because we enjoy being violent or anything like that. That's actually a very, very rare phenomenon. It does exist. I mean, there are some real sadists out there, but the joker is not, I mean, that's really not human nature. Most people, when they commit uh, violence or atrocities, they have to overcome, you know, very powerful instincts within themselves that actually go in the other direction. And they often do it in the name of, of the, the good cause or because they do it for their friends. That's not comforting. Actually, I think that's a very disturbing message that I, that I talk about in my book. Um, this dark side of friendliness. I, I think that yeah. would be part of it. I thought that one of the things that screenwriting teaching uh, teaches you is the idea you should write your, vi- your villain thinks they're the hero in a different story, right? Which is this way. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting when you try and look about, at people do it. Very few people seem to do evil acts like sitting there in their volcano lair cackling, thinking, well, hey, I'm ruining some people's yeah. lives today. There's also this it's British whether or not, for example, I think it was Blackadder or something <laughs> where you have these two high-ranking Nazi soldiers... Oh, it's Mitchell and oh. Webb. Are we the baddies? Yeah. Yeah. Are we the baddies? Right. <laughs> right. But but, but yeah. I think that's a really useful insight is that what happens is perhaps an ideology takes over to the point that people start to think, you know, 
God wants me to cleanse the earth of this people or, you know, this this terrible thing has to happen so that we can raise society and start again. And and they are a, a kind of twisted to kind of divine mission or ideological mission, right? It's very few people who do bad things do it because they think they're doing yeah. a bad thing. You know, there was actually a little bit of a translation issue with the title of my book. Because in Dutch, and I originally wrote it in Dutch, the title is Most People Deugen, where Deugen is a verb that you can't really translate. It's sort of, if you deug, then you are sort of good after all. But you're certainly not a hero. And I wouldn't even describe people who deug as good people. They're sort of, I don't know, they're at least, they're not savages. And they want to be helpful and etc. They have feelings of empathy, etc., but that's not the same as being a hero. And I think this is, I mean, that's, this is the, the, the message that you have in your own uh, book, Difficult Women, um, which I, you know, after I read your book, I thought that I was wondering whether I should have emphasized that a bit more because I only do it like in the epilogue. But that a lot of progress actually comes from people who are rather nasty and unfriendly and, and as you say, difficult, right? And that so often friendliness sort of stands in the way of progress because... You know, if you if you're at a birthday party and then your your racist uncle starts going again, well, then maybe you have to sort of, yeah, sort of, uh, how do you say that in English? <laughs> uh, say something about it, and Kick then it's off. not not going to be a very yeah. friendly and nice party anymore. That's one of the things I find most interesting is to unpick the difference between, and this is unfair doing you, this to you in your second language, but kindness and niceness and compliance right and 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 rightness you know and actually they're not always the same thing some like you know in in the sense of being and parenting being an obvious example right just giving your child everything that they want isn't actually kind you're going to end up raising a monster actually the kind thing is to set boundaries and limits and that in your racist uncle example you know the do you prioritize your own comfort and the nice of the party over the larger social injustice of racism? Those are negotiations that we're all constantly making all the time. But but you're right. And, and actually, the other strand of that, I guess, is also cooperation versus selfishness, which, is, again, is not quite the same thing. Because, you you know, uh, uh, but, but, it's, but I, it seemed to me that what you were mostly taking aim at in a political sense is that ideology that says, you know, the, the economic logic that says we're all out just to maximize our, you know, how much stuff we've got and how much we personally hold. And actually, I, I agree with you. I don't think most people do think like that. Most people don't want to be the only rich person in a wasteland. Mm-hmm. It's not very yeah, satisfying. Yeah. And it's interesting that with theories of human nature is that something that is totally obvious when we think about our friends or our colleagues or when we think about ourselves Suddenly we forget that when we think about society in general. I experience this a lot when I talked about basic income to people. And you ask the question, well, what are you going to do with a basic income? And people have all kinds of wonderful ideas and dreams. And, well, I'm going to start a new company. I'm going to do this course into blah, 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 and etc. And then you ask the question, well, what will other people do? Well, my friends, I've heard they've got some dreams too. But most other people, you know, they'll waste it on drugs or alcohol, whatever. So um, I guess that's... Uh, That's the problem often. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Universal basic income is a as you say, six years ago was seen as this crazy left-wing idea. Actually, now some people in Silicon Valley coming at it from a libertarian, you know, the robots are going to take all our jobs, so we need to make sure people don't, you know, revolt against us. I mean, I'm still, you know, I I just wonder if it's progressive enough, actually, if, if giving everybody a flat rate, you know, actually, do I just want better benefits? But having... What I think is interesting about your work is that so much of it seems to be about shifting the window of what's possible hmm. and what's seen as being just idealistic and pie in the hmm. sky, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that is the process that has always fascinated me, how it's possible that, yeah, things that just a couple of years ago are seen as unrealistic or bizarre or unreasonable can somehow enter the mainstream. And, uh, you know, what a fascinating moment was, I think, the beginning of April, this editorial in the Financial Times, where, you know, this is, what is it? The world's most influential business paper that said that we need to, quote, reverse the policy direction of the past 40 years. Think about a basic income, higher taxes on the rich, a Green New Deal, that we completely need to rethink, you know, the role of the state, not the state as some kind of facilitator of business, where sort of the state gives you know, make sure that there's good infrastructure, people have Wi-Fi and, you know, a high quality education, but do much more, you know, in terms of research and social welfare and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I was like, this is, is this real? Like, who wrote this? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think it just shows you that indeed uh, there are some really interesting things that happen happening. And uh, that is the process that has always fascinated me, sort of how that happens. How are you getting on in your quest to make billionaires pay the same tax rate as you and me? 
Huh. Well, it, this is another this is another example where just I think five ten years ago there wasn't much discussion around tax evasion. It's one of the paradoxes. This is true for the the Black Lives Matter movement as well. Is that the moment we get angry about something or there's a a big movement and you sort of have the feeling, well, things are worse than ever. That, in reality, that is actually the moment when things are improving. Because if you think about tax evasion, obviously 10 years ago, that was, in many ways, that was actually worse than it's now. We've, we've made some progress since then. Switzerland, for example, used to be this tax paradise with bank secrecy. Well, that's gone. You know, it's the US and the FBI under that pressure. They just didn't last and now it's gone. And people said for decades, well, that will never be gone. That will always be the case. Switzerland will be this tax paradise with bank secrecy. Not the case anymore. So that is that is very counterintuitive that these also these movements from the past couple of months after the George Floyd killing. I mean, how many George Floyds have there been before George Floyd that didn't cause this huge peaceful outbreak of protests, right? How many have there been? Well, a lot. So that is sort of the thing that you've got to try and wrap your head around, that even though, yes, we should be really, really angry and worried and, and not be optimistic at all. I mean, you don't have to be an optimist, but you can find some hope in the fact that actually this, these movements represent some genuine progress. I did feel that when you have Elizabeth Warren you know, doing a pretty serious presidential bid on the back of talking about taxing, you know, wealth taxes, you know, state taxes on these really huge multi-million pound piles of cash, you know, and, and, and talking about inequality, specifically in reducing inequality. I did think actually it has moved now from the, you know, those ideas are no longer laughable. I think they, they now do feel like they're kind of in, and I think Bernie Sanders did a lot, you know, to, to move those things into the American mainstream right and whatever you think about the you know his candidacy overall you know joe biden is now running on a platform that is to significantly to the left you know whatever you think about jeremy corbyn's leadership of the labor party the mood is in britain has has turned against austerity as evidenced by the fact that you know boris johnson's conservative government says you know we're not we're not doing that anymore and and he's in the middle of giving away fistfuls of yeah. cash to anyone who wants to have a, bur- a burger at a restaurant at the yeah. moment we live in this very strange period where it seems to me that left-wing political parties are not doing good at all but left-wing political ideas are actually having quite a good time it's a very strange paradoxical situation i mean in the netherlands i can i can't imagine you know uh, left-wing political parties getting a majority anytime soon actually it's been declining but then if you look sort of at the center of politics and sort of uh, our climate policies, inequality, anti-poverty measures, the social welfare state that used to be much more about what we call workfare, you know, where it's all about distrusting those who are on benefits and trying to force them to, you know, work more and work harder. That's that's really been going in the other direction. I mean, we're we're not nearly there yet, but I think the the momentum is there. But if you would just look at the polls, you wouldn't really see it. No, I think that's very true here as well. There was a Politico, I think, did an accounting of Ed Miliband's 2015 manifesto and then ticked off about six or seven things from it, laughed at at the time as being, oh, come on, what do you communists asking, you know, want now? And then have ended up being enacted like a, a cap on energy prices, for example, energy bills, you know, which was kind of, you know, how terrible the state would you know, presume to tell energy companies how much they can charge people. And then five years later, it's, yeah, it's just happened. It's just happened. But why is that, though? Why aren't the left-wing party, you know, why are left-wing ideas getting more airtime, but the left 
the institutions of the left aren't benefiting from that energy. I've got a theory about it. I'm not, I'm not really sure whether it's correct. But I think that if you... I mean, if you want to go from the exciting idea that's moving into the mainstream to actually wielding political power, then at some point you have to make compromises and to build a movement that's bigger. That's what I loved about one of the first chapters in your book when you, where you talk about you know, uh, women's suffrage and, and how all these really uh, difficult compromises had to be made between aristocrat women, you know, in, high up in British society and then working class women. And that actually many of these compromises didn't last for long and that, that after a couple of years, they still hated each other. I guess that people on the right are often better at that, that they're just, they're just happy agreeing that those are the people there, they're the enemy and we don't really care about our own differences. Where on the left with progressives, it's often, you get this, what Freud called the narcissism of minor differences. This has always puzzled me, is that the the people who hate me the most actually agree with me on 90% of all issues or 98% of all issues but just disagree with the way I you know a specific kind of concept I use or think that I don't tweet enough about this or that I tweet about this but that I should also tweet about this and I don't know something like that and I guess that happens a lot and it's not really helpful if you want to build a a bit broader movement. Maybe that's just me being annoyed at Twitter because actually you could also argue that, I mean, in a way we're getting much better at building movements. Just look at these huge peaceful protest movements across the US, for example. But that's sort of my hunch. What do you think? But I also think it's about being wedded to very old-fashioned ideas of of left and right. Because I I agree, I get the same thing. I get people telling me that I'm not lefty enough. And you kind of go, well... I actually would support a hundred percent inheritance tax and free universal child, you know, free universal childcare for you know, um, which would be a huge burden to impose on the state. But I think, as you know, many of the ideas in your book would actually ultimately pay off in huge productivity gains and huge amounts of, particularly women being able to continue working at the level they were at before. And 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 you think, but it, it so much becomes about on the left. I think about identity and a kind of competition of who's the best, who's the most pure. Whereas I think the right is a lot more like, we'd like to be in charge, please. Like, what are the mechanisms we, and, and, and therefore, you know, they talk about the kind of the Tory party being the, in Britain, being the longest running political party in the world. But it's been, it's done that by become by being incredibly, what's the kind way to put this, ideologically flexible. You know, think that, the, the, the Conservative Party in Britain in 2020 is actually incredibly different, even in economic terms, from the one in 2010. Just absolutely miles, completely different in its position on Brexit, for example. But it's still got some fundamental principles and it's still really, really committed to being in power. And I'm not sure that I always see that so much on the left. And what I, I think is the common strand between my book and your book is the kind of the idea that the best way to do politics is to say, to try and work out what we want. Like, here's the demand. And then who can I build? A, like, who's like who's with me? And that's a better that's a better way to work backwards from like what do I want? Yeah, how do I get focus it? on the goal instead of the method or on the purity of the people you'd have to work with. I guess that would sort of be the be the right at you. I mean, even though there, I mean, there are good examples of people who understand this. I recently wrote this essay about sort of what I call maybe a bit prematurely uh, the end of neoliberalism, where I, I looked at 
two different groups of economists. On the one hand, you have this French trio of Thomas Piketty, and he, I mean, he became very famous with his book, Capital in the 21st Century, and his uh, colleagues, uh, Emmanuel Says and Gabriel Zuckman. Gabriel Zuckman is hugely influential. I mean, on tax evasion, he's on so many very important publications just to show how big this phenomenon is. Um, and then also you have this other group of, of female economists where I think Mariana Matsukato is the most important one. And she's an American-Italian economist, um, incredibly productive, and wrote this hugely influential book, uh, The Entrepreneurial State, where she shows that most fundamental innovations come from the government and not from the business sector. Um, what I find most interesting about her is that she's a networker and an v- incredibly proactive networker. She's, she, she's not interested in just writing a book. She wants to go to the World Economic Forum in Davos and speak to as many people as possible and not like me have like a you have 15 seconds of fame, but like have genuine influence, not just one viral moment, right? But just, yeah, talk about where are the billions of dollars and euros going to go next year. That is that is interesting. I think this, uh, it's, uh, many of the sort of the economists behind the Green New Deal are sort of, I think this, uh, maybe it's a, it's a little bit of uh, I'm, I'm maybe now making anecdotes into a, a bigger thing, a theory. <laughs> but yeah, there are these sort of younger female economists who really want results. Yeah, I think that Mariana Mazzucati book, I think, is incredibly influential. She has this thing about the fact that, you know, the majority of components in the iPhone yeah. are developed by, you know, like particularly through U.S. defense money, but state money. So we have this whole idea about, wow, Apple should be like, you know, of course, Apple should be allowed to have factories in China and shouldn't, you know, should pay favorable tax regimes because it's, you know, it's so productive. And yet the state is, you know, it, it relies entirely on the on the state to do that. And I think that happens at a micro level too. You know, I, I still think one of the most consequential political speeches in the last couple of years in America was that Elizabeth Warren, you know, nobody got rich on their own. And I, and I, and I think it was a way of expressing something very simply, you know, you took your goods to market on roads that we all built, you know, your, your, your workers are healthy because of, a, you know, because that there is a public health system, at least in, in Britain. And, and that strain of thinking, I think has become a lot more, acceptable and, and and popular and as you say partly due to the fact that there are people willing to kind of come yeah. out and fight for maybe it maybe it's also accelerated by this crisis what do you think because you, you recently had like all these governments around the globe publishing lists of the so-called essential workers and i was thinking like this could be a sort of a defining moment moment for a whole generation everywhere in the news there were these lists like the teachers and the nurses and the care workers and you didn't see the bankers or the or the managers or the telemarketeers on them so sometimes i wonder whether in the 80s or the 90s there was a spirit like okay we had enough of the 60s we just want to we do, we don't have like ideals or anything we just want to make money let's go, get on with it right we are generation nothing as as it was called in in the netherlands in the 90s back then but now that sort of has that's not fashionable anymore. It's become much more fashionable to actually believe in something and to have a job that's actually of social value. So if you're young right now and you're thinking about what you want to study, I mean, are you really going to say at that birthday party, well, oh, I want to become a banker. Well, maybe you still want to, but maybe you still like the money, but you're not going to brag about it anymore, I think. Uh, so I was wondering whether this, yeah. whether that the, whether the corona crisis could help to to move us into a different era that is more about cooperation or solidarity or, yeah, sort of giving back. 
I think one of the things that the coronavirus crisis to me seems to have done is reminded people of the fact that government is important. There's a really brilliant bit in uh, Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, where he talks about both presidential handovers and also these awards that were created for people who worked in public sector in America. And he said it was, you know, it was really notable. The number of people who wanted to work in government jobs were first or second generation immigrants from countries where the state didn't work you know, where they weren't complacent about the fact that you could switch on a tap and that water was drinkable. And I think that, to me, is the thing that I hope would most come out of this crisis, is people looking around and thinking, do I want to live in Germany or New Zealand or, you know, wherever it might be, or do I want to live in, a, you know, an aggressively capitalist country like America with very patchy social welfare net or, you know, a very authoritarian country where I'm just, you know, I'm going to be told no one's dying. We don't need to take any action. And, and it's hard to look around and, and not see the importance of, of good government. I'm just going to turn us to questions now. We have one here from Eleanor in Cambridge. What is the antidote to cynicism? Hmm. Realism is the antidote to cynicism. You know, I think that often we humans, we are the stories that we tell ourselves. And for a very long time, we've tell, been telling our quite, ourselves quite cynical stories. In the book, I give the example of Lord of the Flies, you know, the hugely famous novel about kids shipwrecking on an island. Or, well, not actually shipwrecking. There's an airplane crash, and then they end up on an island. And they turn into savages. And millions of children around the globe, up until this day, still have to read it. I think it's a good book. I mean, it won a Nobel Prize for a reason. But then it would also be nice if people would know that actually the one time it really happened um, was in 1965, in 1966, near Tonga. Six kids shipwrecked on an island. And that was a very different story because this was a story of friendship and survivorship and friendliness. I managed to track down some of these real live Lord of the Flies children and uh, they're friends up until this day. Um, that does, I mean, that's not a scientific experiment. It's just an anecdote. But anecdotes can be very important and influential sometimes. And the real, the real Lord of the Flies is the opposite of the fictional one. So I guess that's sort of my, that's my response. What's the antidote to cynicism? Well, let's tell different kinds of stories. Uh, because these stories can be, become self-fulfilling prophecies. Yeah, I feel that very strongly, that you get these kind of, I guess they're, they're memes, really, in the old-fashioned sense of, like, the self-made man, right? So you have Donald Trump thinks he's a self-made man, and, oh, you discover actually what he had was a couple of million pounds from from his father. So, so you know, actually, you know, it's not... It's not and, and, but, but because that's the, the mythology begins to... And every, you know, we have such confirmation bias that we just add to it and add to it and add to it, and you end up with these yeah. stories that look like... Look like it's truth. also a challenge as a writer, right? H how important do you want the stories to be in your book? Because people remember stories. They forget all the statistics, but they remember the stories. I had this one story in my previous book, Utopia for Realists, where they gave free money to nine homeless men in London, £3,000, completely unconditional. It was a quite successful experiment. Now, I believe that was the weakest sort of argument I made in my book because it was, a, it was an unscientific experiment. Like, just nine men, what can you, you can't draw any conclusions out of that data. But I, I've actually been at a couple of, again, uh, birthday parties where I was talking to people I had never met before, and they asked me, well... Uh, what do you do? And I say, I'm a writer. And so uh, what do you write for? And I say, I write for the correspondent. Oh, never heard about that. So uh, have you written any books? Yeah, yeah, Utopia Free is. Oh, I didn't read it. So what, what it's about? Basic income. 
uh, giving people free money. Oh, that's interesting. You should look this up. There's been an experiment in London. It's actually, uh, and and I knew that they had read my article about it. But they had forget, forgotten everything, right? Who I was, that, etc., etc. And that's so powerful about story about stories, even though they can obviously also be misleading. If you don't, if you write about the story but not include the meta analysis, then I think you're filled as a writer. But because, yeah, that's that's I guess the trouble with some. Some really good writers out there. And this is a, maybe some, the trouble with some of my writing as well, that I fall in love with the stories and, and sort of forget that it's not the whole of reality. No, I, I think it's a really hard thing to wrestle with because um, there are kind of a couple of quite brutal jabs at Malcolm Gladwell, Jared Diamond in the book. And, and I've just been working on my current book and there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's something in there that I read and I, I went, oh no, there's a Malcolm Gladwell article about it where he's got to all the conclusions, but... And, you know, actually, he's kind of called it completely wrong. And it's and it's too neat. And actually, the real story is something much more complicated, and interesting. And I thought that's to me is the problem with that with those books is that they're, they're too good as stories. And everything is too neat. And and anything kind of seems to get kind of brushed under the under the carpet. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute. I, am I, do I do that too? And I'm sure you must have thought this too. I, I, I worried when I read, read the book, I thought, I wonder if the Christmas Day truce, which you mention in your book, I wonder if actually there were a couple of people bayoneting people in, in the background. Like, <laughs> I, in order to keep that story pure, yeah. actually, has yeah. that story yeah. been? Like, even the stories that I like, have they been, have they been tidied yeah. up too? I think actually the opposite is true, actually, for the Christmas truce thing, you know? Because for years, actually, historians didn't pay any attention to it. And then the BBC in the 1980s, they were the first one to make a documentary about it. And for quite a while, it was quite controversial. And you can still feel, find articles on the internet where even sometimes professional historians say, well, it was actually a myth. It didn't really happen. And they didn't play soccer. Well, why is it a myth if you can find eyewitness accounts of people who've seen it? And not just one, but multiple. I mean, there's some really powerful evidence that even these soccer matches did, did happen. Now, obviously, there's very powerful evidence that the First World War happened as well. So it's just like a very small ray of light in a sea of darkness. But it still gives you some hope. Yeah, and I thought your quotation, the George Orwell one from the Spanish Civil War, about him refusing to shoot that guy who ran past him, like holding his trousers up with both hands. I think that's such an interesting... Because I think I thought, I thought I, you know, in that situation, even if that wasn't... Obviously, I was supposed to think that was a very bad person, presumably a fascist soldier you kind of couldn't do it because you would see them instantly as a person, not as an enemy combatant. And I, I think that was very, I thought that was a, that was yeah. a very telling quotation. I, I, but you know, what's interesting that. here is that what sometimes happens is that someone comes up with a really interesting theory, but doesn't give the right evidence. So in this case, that was SLA Marshall, the American combat historian who, you know, traveled with the troops in 1944 and 1945 and was one of the first people to notice that many of the soldiers didn't actually shoot during combat and said that they couldn't do it and, you know, came up with some kind of excuse. Now, he was later criticized very strongly because, you know, he didn't really have statistics or it was seemed like more of a guess. And so many people now think that this whole phenomenon of soldiers not shooting during wars, that that's just a myth, that actually we are born to kill and we quickly do that if we're drafted into the army. But I think that people are right when they say that Marshall didn't come up with convincing evidence. But it was an interesting hypothesis that he launched. And since then, many other people have actually come up with way more convincing evidence that I think show that he was at least 18, 90% right. So that's sometimes also the problem with this, this, this debunking attitude is that we sort of, oh, that's been debunked. That's been debunked. 
well, actually, sometimes even debunking can be a little bit more nuanced as well. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was just reading the memoir of uh, Jason Fox, who's one of the SAS Who Dares Wins guys, who had to quit the army and had terrible PTSD because suddenly, you know, he st- I think he killed someone in front of a child. And suddenly at that point, it became, it didn't, like, it, it snapped out of that video game frame of reference and began to sort of see things through, as real life. And we now know the huge extent of post-traumatic trauma among soldiers, something that was just a huge taboo to, to talk about, which fits again into that thesis that humans find killing really, really hard. I'm going to ask you another question, which is, why are so many current leaders clearly not nice? <laughs> so the short summary of my book would be, most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. That's sort of my my getaway out of that, that question. So there's really powerful evidence now from psychology that power works like this drug that, I mean, damages the brain uh, in a way. And uh, there's a research group in in the US around Professor Dacher Keltner. There's some really interesting work. His, his book is called The Power Paradox, where he shows that actually people prefer to have leaders who are friendly and nice. And often these people rise, you know, in the hierarchy. But then when they're at the top, this is the dark irony, they often become corrupted by power. There's even some evidence from neurology, which I think you still have to take with a little bit of salt, that it seems as if you had sort of the regions in the brain that are involved with feelings of empathy, they don't really light up anymore in, 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 in powerful people, don't really seem to work that well anymore, as if they've become disconnected from society. They've become unplugged. Their Wi-Fi doesn't work anymore. There's their sort of their social Wi-Fi. So I think that's a really important part of the explanation. But it's, I mean, it's a terrible indictment of our sort of current political system. How is it possible that people who would have quickly been expelled in a hunter-gatherer environment, who wouldn't have survived for long, can now become president of the United States. How is it possible that we have this survival of the shameless process going on? Yeah, I mean, my my theory about that is that in some ways, I wonder if they're not the you know multi-drug resistant bacteria or viruses of our shaming culture. When you have a situation in which there's so much public shaming, it becomes a huge evolutionary advantage to be completely shameless and to be from the kind of identity group already you know, primarily rich white men who can survive a shaming, at which point you become sort of weirdly yeah, indestructible. Yeah. Have you written that piece already? But, because that, that, there's so much truth in that. For me, it was one of the most fascinating discoveries while researching this book is that human beings that were pretty much the only animal in the whole animal kingdom who blush. Isn't that, I, I thought that was so fascinating. That, that, I mean, bonobos don't blush, chimpanzees don't blush, but... We do it. We involuntarily give away our feelings to someone else, you know, probably in order to establish trust. How can that ever be an evolutionary advantage? Well, the hypothesis that biologists have now is that, it, as I said, it helps to establish trust, so it helps people to cooperate. But then these people at the top, they seem to have lost the ability to blush, right? Maybe they, can, they become orange sometimes, but not really red, right? So uh, that is such... I, I, I think that should be a good question as if you're a political reporter and you're interviewing a politician just ask the question when was the last time you blushed and 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 how long they have to think about that i think that tells you a lot that is a great i'm gonna i'm noting that down (laughs) which do you prefer pessimism or optimism and what are the advantages and disadvantages of the one you Hmm. picked well I, i i don't i don't like either pessimism or optimism 
I think they are both sort of forms of laziness. Um, so the optimist is a little bit like, oh, things will turn out to be all right. Just look at the graphs. I recently read Hans Rosling's book or Stephen Pinker's book. And actually, did you know that the world is in a great shape today? Child mortality is going down. So don't worry about racism or climate change. Actually, we live in the best of times. Well, I never re- really liked that attitude because I, I don't think it's helpful. And it's often, yeah, it makes people complacent. It's one of the things that I worry about the most, actually, right now with this book, is that even though I I do say this in my book, is that people are not naturally good and that actually we often do very nasty things in the name of friendliness, etc. I, I worry about the image of people, you know, on a holiday at a beach reading my book and feeling like, oh, you know, things are good after all. I don't really have to change my life or anything. Let's go get on with it. That's what I worry about. I wouldn't be so worried about that as I would be about the opposite end, which is apathy induced by despair. And I think it's really interesting. I saw an interview with a climate change scientist who said something about, you know, something about emissions being really bad. And, you know, we're looking at two degrees of warming, but that's something that we can change with our behavior. And I thought that's something that I would sort of counsel every climate scientist to include every time they do any kind of public statement, right? Because otherwise you just hear, you know, the world is on this one-way track to becoming a huge fiery box. And uh, oh, well, like, screw it then, I'm going to use my SUV and, you know, like, we're all doomed. And I think I think that's, a, to me, that that is the, the pessimism of sort of apathy is, is a bigger problem than... Yeah, I, I totally I mean, agree. Great. David Wallace Wells made this point. You know, he wrote the book, The Uninhabitable Earth, which is such an extraordinarily powerful book about climate change. I read it after I finished this book and I was like, I'm only going to write about climate change after this. Because I, I think that very often people on the right, they, they're naive about climate science, but people on the, on the left are totally naive about climate action. They think that solar panels and windmills are going to save us. But I mean, it's just... they're. We need to sort of the kind of transformation that you need is so much more radical than people realize. And so he made the point somewhere, I can't remember where, where he says that, well, it doesn't seem as if there's, there's enough fear or anything of this. And actually fear can be a motivating force as well, especially if you combine it with hope, right? If you're really afraid of something, but then someone can give you hope, like we can actually do something. Well, I think that's 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 what we need. Not optimism or pan- pessimism or anything like that. Just this 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 classic distinction between optimism and hope. I've always liked that. And that's why the subtitle of my book is A Hopeful History, not an optimist history, but an hopeful history. Yeah, but I do think you're right. I think that is one of the current problems of the left is an an actual failure to engage with difficult choices. So climate change being an obvious example. I mean, I interviewed Caroline Lucas, who's the Green Party leader here, or was at the time, and, you know, saying, can we continue to have GDP growth in the way that we'd had it? Can we, you know, if in your vision in 25 years time, can I fly on holiday abroad? You know, you know, can we still eat meat every, every day? And the answer to those questions realistically is no, unless something magical happens. But there's a kind of, as you say, I'm not wanting to kind of reckon with people. Yes, it's this is a soluble problem, but it's going to require quite big lifestyle changes for quite a lot of the planet. You know, one of the bizarre things that has happened in that debate is that people now talk about climate mobilization as if mobilization is some kind of happy, clappy thing where people come together and have a wonderful time. Well, if you actually study mobilization, for example, wartime mobilization, this is, this is the analog- analogy that people are 
drawing all the time, you know, the wartime mobilization in the US or in Britain during the Second World War. Well, it wasn't nice. It was actually a really hard top-down process, you know, when individual liberties were, were limited, when people had to pay a shitload of taxes, you know, rates that people, even people on the left will become nauseous when they see them, right? Like, uh, well, you'll get your 100% inheritance tax. Don't, don't worry about that. So yeah, it's just sort of the, the kind of action that you need is, is way more than people think. And uh, you'd also have to accept solutions that are not just just not really comfortable whether it's co2 storage and capture which is really controversial or nuclear energy uh, i mean i'm not one of those people who's obsessed with nuclear energy and thinks it's the solution to everything but when you're in an emergency you just need everything right you're not in a luxury position where you say oh well we'll just have some solar panels here and some windmills there but only if they don't destroy my nice view of this landscape here no obviously you can't do that you ha- you need everything and you need to do it immediately and this is another one of those examples where people who care about climate change need to become way more realistic about the importance of uncomfortable compromises and building a bigger movement to actually be serious about this i have one final quick question before i hand back to hannah which is this if you can get everybody who's watching this to go away and do one thing, apart from buy the book if they haven't <laughs> bought the book already, obviously, what, what would it be? Huh. Well, just ask yourself the question, what would it mean for my, my own life or the institutions that I'm a part of? You know, the school that I go to or the university or my workplace or whatever. I mean, people are in many ways shaped by their institutions. What, what are the implications of a, of a different view of human nature? Because I think that's always the most interesting that you can accomplish as a, uh, as a writer, is that people take the ideas that you've taken from somewhere else, obviously, and they apply it in a different context. That's always what I'm most excited about, where sometimes you hear these stories, you know, on the, on the other side of the globe, someone has, I don't know, started a new company or changed his or her life, and in a way that you could never have imagined. And what I, I strongly believe that once you change your view of human nature, so many things change in your own life. And I think that in my book, I've only, uh, it's only like a short, short exploration of what the implications could be. And I'm very curious to see what other people will come up with. Well, I hope that they do. And thank you, Rutger. The book is Humankind. Thank you to our audience and thank you to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.